Hello, everybody. Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Amy Foster. Love being here with you. Love studying God's Word with you. So thanks for joining with us to do this today. Uh, real quick, I just want you to uh, answer me by raising your hands. How, how many of you have ever been on a spiritual retreat? Any of you? Oh, hands all over the room. So you're going to understand this. You know, sometimes it's just necessary to physically get away from the demands and the distractions of our everyday lives. Sometimes we have to do that and silence our life just so we can really hear God. One of my favorite retreat locations is down in the hill country, and I think just the topography and the landscape there just really speaks to my soul. This particular place feels so removed from the world, and, it, and it's mostly that way just because of the work you have to do to get there. So they send you these elaborate directions, and you start out on an interstate highway, a big busy highway. And then after a while, you take some turns, and you find yourself on those two-lane farm-to-market roads. And then you follow some directions and take a few more turns, and you're not on a paved road anymore. You're on an asphalt road. And then you come to the place where the road completely ends, and your car is perpendicular to the Frio River. But your directions say turn left. There's no road left. So you look around, and this is the sign you see. No joke. It says, yes, you drive in the river. That's your left turn is pull into the river. Are you kidding me? Well, I'm a rule follower. So I turn into the river. And here's what you find when you turn into the river. Show us that next slide. Okay, the river's pretty shallow, and the bottom is solid stone. And you do the last part of your journey in the beautiful Texas hill country, driving in the river. You roll the windows down. You hear the water. You kind of feel it on your wheels. You see the green trees, and you feel like you've left the world behind. That's my kind of retreat. Jesus has decided that his disciples need a spiritual retreat as well. He's taking them away from the hustle and bustle of the world because they need not a rest, but they need a pretty intense time of preparation for them because Jesus knows what's coming ahead. Things are hard for them already. Here's what's happened in our story. Nazareth, Jesus' home, they've rejected Jesus. The religious leaders keep coming out in these little bands from Jerusalem trying to accuse Jesus, trying to catch him, trying to arrest him. Um, the opposition is growing. John the Baptist, beloved John the Baptist, was arrested and beheaded. And Jesus knows they haven't seen anything yet. The greatest kingdom conflict is coming. It's going to happen on a hill in Jerusalem, and the disciples aren't ready for it. So Jesus is pulling the disciples away from the crowd, and he's really taking them out to discipleship boot camp. He needs to prepare his true disciples. They need to learn some kingdom lessons. And we have to remember there were loads of people following Jesus around, wanting the spectacle of a miracle and wanting to be a part of all the excitement. They did not all prove to be true disciples, and so we really get some true discipleship lessons here in these chapters today. I want you to open your Bible and begin reading with me. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. 
Jesus answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. And so Jesus left them and departed. He's traveling with the disciples now. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus says to them, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, says, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood. He didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the discipleship lessons here begin with a rather strange request. It's a veiled request. Actually, it's a trick or a demand. The Pharisees and Sadducees are asking Jesus to show a magnificent sign from heaven, and most likely this was some kind of a setup. They want a spectacular miracle that would prove to them that Jesus is actually from heaven. Because remember, they've been accusing him of doing mighty signs using the power of Satan. And so they want proof that he's from heaven, and they ask for another sign. And I had to stop and think that's kind of an audacious request, show us a sign in spite of where we are in the story of Jesus' life on earth. How many signs has he already done? He's been performing miracles for quite some time, healing people from leprosy and blindness and paralysis. All those were healings of individuals, and there's more than we can even keep count of. But most recently, he's changed those signs a little bit. He's been doing not just individual signs, he's been doing massive signs. Massive signs, feeding thousands of people from just a few loaves of bread. He does that twice in two different areas. And then going into specific areas and healing every single person who comes to him. Everyone. I want you to imagine our city, if every hospital bed was empty, every doctor's office was empty, every rehab institution was empty. That was massive when Jesus would go into these places and hear everyone. Massive in scale, massive in scope, and yet here are these bold, audacious leaders saying, would you please show us a sign? Show us a sign that's as big as heaven. It was an arrogant demand to make of Jesus, and so he gives them a pretty scathing response in return. He calls them evil and adulterous, and adultery here has a very clear meaning. It's spiritual adultery. Israel is familiar with this term. It means they're deserting their first love, God. They are giving their affections and their priorities to other things, not to God. And he says, you know how to observe the weather signs and draw the right conclusions, but you've seen all my signs and you cannot perceive that the kingdom of God is dawning right before your eyes. Isaiah had prophesied this, Isaiah 6-9 on your verse sheet. 
says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. That's exactly what they're doing. Instead of perceiving the dawning of the kingdom of God, they choose to ignore, misread, and malign the signs of heaven. Signs are of no use if you do not have eyes to see. And so in response to their hard, unteachable hearts, Jesus declares, no more signs will be done for you. But very graciously, he lets them know there will be a sign in the future. They will have one more opportunity to see with their eyes and to perceive. And that sign will be the sign of Jonah. This is the second time he's talked about the sign of Jonah. We always have to remember Matthew is written to a Jewish audience. So Jonah is an incredibly familiar reference to a Jewish audience. Jonah had been a prophet in Israel. Jonah had been swallowed by a whale, spent three days in a whale's belly before he was spit onto dry land to experience life anew. And here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus himself would be the sign from heaven. He was going to be the massive sign that they were demanding. He'd be resurrected to life after three days in the tomb. It would be visible to everyone, but only those who were perceptive would understand it as a sign showing the kingdom of God had arrived. And then it says that he left them, and we lose a little in the language here. It actually means he abandoned them completely. He abandoned this area. This is his last withdrawal from Galilee because of their hard heart and their opposition. We will see him traveling through Galilee again on his way back to Jerusalem, but we won't see him attempting to teach these hard-hearted people again. So our lesson really begins with a discipleship don't, and it's don't fail the perception test. I think Jesus is still focusing on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their inability to perceive the signs of the time as he's traveling. And so he turns to his disciples and says, beware, watch out for the teaching of these people. And and his word there is really, um, it communicates a perpetual defensive position. Be constantly on your guard. Be constantly watching for this. But unfortunately, we see our beloved disciples have a bit of a perception failure here, too. They misunderstand. We can only assume that their minds are focused on the material here, not the spiritual. They hear, beware the leaven, and they start thinking about bread and wringing their hands. And, oh, dear, we brought no bread. How will we feed ourselves? And you know these people, they're always hungry. How will we feed them? And don't you know Jesus wanted to say, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? After all the signs and feeding the 5,000s. You know, his earlier teaching in Matthew 6 had totally addressed this. Matthew 6, verse 31. Don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So they clearly fail the perception test as they're focusing on the material and not the spiritual. Sadly, they also fail the faith test here. Jesus calls them out, and he calls this little faith, which means little trust in me. How quickly they've forgotten. Jesus has demonstrated abundantly that he will provide all they need for the ministry work they're to do. When they focus on the wrong things, their perception fails and their faith shrinks. 
So he reminds them this isn't about bread. He uses leaven as a teaching tool here, the same way leaven or yeast silently permeates an entire batch of dough and affects everything. False teaching will do the same thing. It will spread among the people and have a profound impact. What he's saying is beware the teaching of your formerly trusted teachers. And that was a pretty shocking thing, and it's going to take them quite a bit of time to get their head around this. You have to remember the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes and elders and chief priests. These were the top positions in Israel. These were the people who were supposed to set the standard and have all the knowledge. And Jesus is saying, you can't trust your teachers. You can't trust their teaching. It's going to take them a long time to really come to terms with that. Just last week in our study, remember they were tapping Jesus and saying, hey, we think you might be offending the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're worried about offending these people who are in a high position, and Jesus is helping them understand their hearts are hard. You can't trust them. So he moves on from that big discipleship don't to a couple of discipleship do's. What does he want them to focus on here? I want to remind you, take a look at your map. We're going to put it up here on the screen. We're told that um, they're withdrawing from the cities of Galilee here. They're journeying together with the disciples. There it is. They go about 30 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. Look where that is on your map. Can you see it up there? I don't have my glasses on. I'm sorry. I can't see it. Caesarea Philippi is 30 miles north of Galilee. And here's what you need to know about that. That really is the furthermost point you can go from Jerusalem. If they wanted to stay within the boundaries of Israel, the furthest they can go is Caesarea Philippi. So imagine Jesus is turning left into the river right now. And he's driving them as far away from the chaos and the clamor as he can. Because nothing is more important to Jesus right now than his approach to the cross. And nothing is more important than preparing the disciples for that conflict that's coming. So let's pick up the teaching here. Chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So what we learn from this is that people don't know who Jesus is and the important thing that we need to get from that, by not recognizing their Messiah, this is the beginning of the national rejection of Jesus. They do not recognize their Messiah and Jesus needs to correct that in this moment. That's why he says, but. That's a misperception, but who do you say I am? I want you to imagine Imagine Jesus standing in front of his group of disciples, and I think with his whole heart, all he wants is for them to know him and recognize him. He knows they need to understand who he is, and so he stands there, and probably pleadingly, he says, guys, who am I? Who am I? And Peter steps forward. We don't know if Peter is speaking just for himself or he's speaking as a spokesperson for all of them. But Peter steps forward and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is a turning point moment. 
This is a great discipleship lesson for them. Jesus wants them to remember it's always about the king. It's always about the king. And Peter makes it very clear when he uses this combination, Christ and son of the living God. Christ, that means the long-awaited savior who would redeem the people. Son of the living God means the long-awaited sovereign who would reign over the people. They've been sniffing at this idea of the, the sovereign son of God. They've been coming to terms with that, but not with the reality of the Messiah who would redeem the people. Peter is proclaiming faith for the first time in both the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's the first time that Matthew's audience is recognizing and acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, the Messiah who was promised and the Messiah who would do a redeeming work. And Jesus agrees with it. Jesus confirms the statement's true. Up to this point, Jesus has been speaking in somewhat veiled terms, referring to prophecies about him, not explicitly expressing that he's the Messiah. But here he agrees with Peter's statement, and he points out it doesn't come, you don't have this understanding, Peter, because of your own wisdom or your own insight. It comes to you from God. God who has sown the good seed in your heart. God has given you eyes to see. God has given you faith to believe. And because of that, you can know Jesus standing in front of you. And then he goes on to say, knowing Christ is a blessing. And that is our testimony today, isn't it? Knowing Christ is a blessing. Each person answers the same question. Jesus stands before us and says, who am I? And if our answer is, you are the Christ who came to save me, you are the king who came to reign, then we too enter the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on with some instructions that the disciples should also remember. Not just about, it's about the king, but it's also about the kingdom. And he's going to explain the kingdom plans here. We're going to pick up in verse 18. Now I want to remind you this is all bundled together Peter's just made this proclamation, and Jesus has just said, you're absolutely right, and God has given you this understanding. And then in verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, so he's explaining kingdom plans here. We have to remember from the very beginning of time, God has been working on the same plan. And that plan is gathering to himself a group of redeemed people. A group of people who would love, live in this eternal, ongoing exchange of love with their creator. That's what God wants for us. We were created to glorify and enjoy and love God. And God's plan has been to draw us together to do just that. We know from our study of the Bible, though, that sin disrupted that relationship. It happened in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And God has been restoring it ever since. God's been working the same plan since the beginning of time. First, he called out the nation of Israel, and he said, you be my people, and I'll be your God. There's that exchange of love relationship. They were to dwell with him. He was going to bless them, bless the world through them. But sin would continue to occur, and there would need to be a perpetually uh, ongoing process of offering sacrifices to atone for their sin, because sin always hurts our relationship with God. 
Now, in God's plan, he's sending his son, the perfect, the final sin sacrifice, who would make a way for these gathered group of people to be in permanent fellowship with God. So here's what we have to consider. As the Jewish nation is rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting the kingdom plans of God. It's a big and a tragic experience for them. But God's plan is not thwarted. It will continue on. It will continue in a new and unexpected direction. God's plan will continue in the New Testament church. Now, we hear that right now, and we think, oh, yes, we know this. God's plan through the church. They'd never heard the word church before. They had never considered this idea before. This is a huge announcement, and I think if we could see them, it would be like mind-blowing stupor. They could not conceive of what Jesus is talking about. They were all prepared for a king to arrive and for his earthly kingdom to begin immediately. But here's the reality. That doesn't happen unless the people will accept the king. And the nation of Israel is not accepting the king. So the kingdom is going to go in a mysterious direction that no one had anticipated. Christ is not going to reign immediately over the entire world. He's going to reign over his group of gathered people that would be the church. He's going to reign over the church for a period of time. He's going to grow and build the church for a period of time. And one day in the future, he will return. And at that point, he will reign. He will rule. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess him. Matthew is the only gospel writer to use the word church. And actually, the word used was ecclesia. It's a brand new idea to the disciples, but it is not a brand new idea to God. It's his continuing plan to draw together this group of people to live in this love relationship with him forever. What we learn in these words right here to Peter, they're words for us also, Christ will be the head of this church. And Peter is certainly honored for being the one who stands up and confidently proclaims faith in Jesus Christ. But it's very clear from the wording here, the church was God's idea. He's the architect. Christ is the builder, the owner, the head, and the Lord of the church. And we see that in this very succinct statement. Jesus says, I am building my church. So what he's doing here, he's announcing the church is a part of God's kingdom plan for the world. So I want us to talk just a little bit about what is the church. Some of the language is pretty confusing here. What is this rock that the church is being built upon? We know that the rock that the church is built upon is not a nationality or a tribe of people like the nation of Israel. Um, that's not what God is saying. Look down, verse 18, you are Peter. And on this rock, I'm building my church. Now, we're going to start this conversation about Peter and the rock with a disclaimer. There are many wise and profound and intelligent and revered theologians who disagree on how we should interpret this. So um, I totally encourage you to go do a little self-study here and see what you think. There is one thing they all agree on. In this one statement, Jesus is using a play on words with the word rock. Okay. The other thing you need to know, um, I've never studied Aramaic. I've never sat under anyone's teaching. I don't know Aramaic. I'm just telling you a little bit about what I've learned as I've studied this. Um, but apparently in Aramaic, there are several words that translate to our one word, rock. And Jesus is using different words here. But when we translate it into English, we just get the same word, rock. So uh, I also want to remind you it's, it's significant that Jesus is playing on this word rock here 
because did you notice this, this conversation started with him calling him Simon Peter, and then he switched to calling him Peter, and I don't know how many of you remember, Peter's given name was Simon. His mother named him Simon, and it was in the moment when Jesus met him and called him to be his follower, Jesus changed his name to Peter. You can read about that in John 1.42 on your verse sheet. It says, Jesus looked at Simon and said, you are Simon, son of John, or Barjona, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, which means the rock. So I think it was in anticipation of this moment, in anticipation of who Peter would become, that Jesus changed his name. So we're going to look at this uh, line from verse 18 in view of the Aramaic. Jesus first says, you are Peter, but what he really said was, you are Petros. Petros is an Aramaic word. It's the masculine form of the word rock, and it would be translated a piece of rock. Then he says, and on this rock, but now he uses a different form of the word uh, rock, he uses Petra. Petra is the feminine form of the word rock, and it's translated a little bit differently. It's translated huge rock, boulder, foundation stone. So you are Peter, a small rock, and on the bigger, bolder rock, I'm building my church. So lots of people have interpreted this differently. Some have interpreted it to mean the church is built on Peter. Others say the church is built on Christ. Others would say the church is being built on Peter's confession of faith. I'm given, uh, I'm particularly leaning towards that third view. Um, the confession of faith is the foundation that the church is built on. That makes the most sense to me, given these different uses of uh, the word rock here. I think Jesus is declaring the confession of faith is what we build the church on. It's the common confession. It's the thing that we share in common. It's the thing that identifies us as followers of Jesus. It separates us from unbelievers. It unites us together as God's church, each individual proclaiming you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe in this instance that's what he means by that is the rock that the church is being built on. We have to remember that the church, which is God's present kingdom plan, it didn't exist when Jesus was talking to the disciples about that. It wouldn't exist until the second chapter of Acts. But when the church existed, it would be made up of men and women who all say the same thing. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's faith in that, in the person and work of Jesus, that's what unlocks the key. That's the key that unlocks the kingdom of heaven for all of us. I think Peter himself expresses this same idea in his later writings. In 1 Peter 2, verse 5, on your verse sheet, Peter, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Peter's talking to new believers in the New Testament church. And he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. So the important thing here is that Jesus is introducing the church as part of God's plan for the future. And he's also introducing that disciples are a part of God's plan. Um, he's introducing all these new ideas here. 
He's going to tell us a little bit about the role of the church. We see that in these words where he talks about binding and loosing. To bind is to declare something unlawful. To loose is to declare something lawful. We lose something in the translation here. We actually use the, lose the tense that Jesus is using. So most literally it would be translated, you will declare bound what has already been bound in heaven. And you will declare loosed what has already been loosed in heaven. So what we can learn from that is Peter and the disciples were not given the authority to determine what was lawful and what was unlawful. They were given the authority and responsibility to proclaim what God had already determined was lawful or unlawful. And this would be the role of the church moving forward, the authority and the responsibility to declare God's truth. Peter and the other disciples would do that, and each of us do that as well. And what truth do we proclaim? We proclaim the bad news that sin disrupts our fellowship with God. But we also proclaim the good news that sin's penalty is loosed for everyone who puts faith in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. That's the role of the church, and it's all part of God's kingdom plan. But it won't happen just yet. There's something else that has to happen before the church comes into play, and the disciples need to understand that. Jesus is also announcing that the church won't be inaugurated until the nation of Israel has officially and completely and fully rejected Jesus. And Jesus describes that in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." All right, I want you to look closely. Verse 21 begins from that time. That's a literary device that Matthew uses to tell us Jesus is really changing in the focus of his teaching to his disciples right now. From that time means from this point forward, he is preparing them for his death. That is his number one goal. And what they need to understand now is there will be no throne without a cross first. He's preparing them for the, the big kingdom conflict that's coming. Like most of Israel, they had anticipated their Messiah's role as the sovereign who would reign. They had not anticipated the Messiah's role as the redeemer who would suffer and pay for the sins of the world. The cross was particularly a difficult idea for Peter to embrace. So it tells us he reproves Jesus. This means he corrects him sharply. Some theologians believe he was prepared to physically restrain Jesus and prevent him from going to Jerusalem. That is a pretty strong response to have to the one you've just said, is the Christ, the Son of the living God, isn't it? So because his response to all that is so strong, Jesus speaks pretty strongly back to Peter. He turns his back, sort of signifying that abandonment and departure, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, no one is suggesting here that Peter is possessed by Satan. Jesus is saying, you are acting like Satan here. We have to remember when we talked about Satan and demons, we always see Satan and demons working with one goal, and it's to oppose the plans of God. So that's what's happening here. Any viewpoint back then and today, any viewpoint that opposes 
or denies Jesus' work on the cross, that is Satan's viewpoint, and it's a hindrance, and it's an offense, and it's a barrier to the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is communicating here. We're reminded from the very beginning, all sin is forgiven by sacrifice. That's God's plan. And when sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, God made it very clear in that same chapter that he would send his holy son into the world. He would be born of a woman, and one day he would crush the head of Satan. He would overcome Satan and sin. That had been God's plan at the very beginning. He had given them prophetic instances to help them recognize it. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And then in verse 10 it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The cross, too, was always part of God's plan. The righteous Son of God would be the perfect sacrifice to pay for the penalty of unrighteous men. So Jesus lets Peter know, you've made this error for one reason, Peter. You're thinking of your own plans, not kingdom plans. And visually, I see Jesus standing nose to nose with Peter, kind of thumping him on the chest, saying, Peter, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about the king, and it's about the kingdom plans of God. Jesus goes on and he makes one more announcement. Disciples would also be a part of God's kingdom plan. But he needs to define what a disciple is because there have been big groups who've been following Jesus around and many of those will not prove to be true disciples. Begin reading with me in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." All right, he's describing a true disciple here. And first he says a true disciple will deny himself. And deny himself means don't think of your own personal interest and plans above God's plans. It's put kingdom plans first. And I do think we can say it's okay to have your personal plans. You just can't prioritize them over God's plans. That's what Peter was doing. So you begin by denying yourself, putting God's plans first. The next requirement for a disciple is you would take up your cross. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. A condemned prisoner in Rome would carry his cross to the execution site, and that symbolized total submission to the authority of Rome. Taking up the cross of Christ is saying, I will submit completely to the king of God's kingdom. We will submit to him. We will obey his commands. And last, a disciple will follow me. That means conform completely to Jesus' example. We will live as Jesus lived. The disciples are going to learn pretty quickly that Jesus would have to suffer and die in order to be obedient to God. The disciples also will suffer and die to be obedient to God. They're going to conform completely to Jesus' example. Ladies, we will suffer and conform to Jesus' example too. 
Fortunately, where we live, I don't think any of us will be persecuted, but there will be other things um, that we will have to submit to. There will be sacrifices that we have to make. We will say no to some things that the world wants us to enjoy because God has said no. There are other things in the world that we'll say no to because God has asked us to prioritize our money, our energy, our effort, and our labor. We may have to be out of step with the norm in our neighborhoods, in our peer group, in our workplace, and maybe even within our family. We will conform to Jesus, not to the world, and that will cost you something in this world. But Jesus goes on to explain that prioritizing the comforts and the security and the worldly things here and now, putting those things over the things of God, is going to cost you dearly. You will forfeit your soul and you will forfeit the eternal love relationship with God that you were made for. You'll let go of the greatest treasure you could ever receive. Augustine said it well, a man may lose the good things of this life against his will, but if he loses the eternal blessings, he does so with his own consent. So the key discipleship message here, it's not about you, it's not about worldly stuff, it's about God and his plans. And we can be encouraged that if we will willingly surrender our present life to God, he will carry us into a life full of blessings. We'll experience some of that right now, and we will continue to experience it in eternity. Well, that's hard and puzzling teaching for the disciples. Um, it's difficult for us too, and that's because we're finite. It's hard for us to think in terms of reality, I mean in terms of eternity, because we don't really have a, a picture of eternity. It's hard to have hope and confidence in something we've never seen or experienced. So God graciously gives them a little sneak peek into eternity. He speaks here of his second coming. He says, when I come with my angels and my glory, he's talking about the day he will return to earth. He will return to earth to reign. As he presently is among the disciples, his glory doesn't show. He's voluntarily taken on human flesh. He's voluntarily covered his glory. I think that's why he refers to himself as the son of man. His glory is still there. He's fully God. He simply covered it, probably shielding it from us for our benefit. But he's telling them there will come a day when this glory of mine will be uncovered. It will be visible to everyone. It's a future day. And on that day, he will reign and he will judge and his glory will be shown to everyone. And then he says, and some of you standing here right now, some of you are going to get to see that. What in the world does that mean? All right, I'm going to paraphrase chapter 17 just a few days later. Here's what it means. He takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. Most likely this is Mount Hermon there in Caesarea Philippi. And he allows them to witness a dramatic change in Jesus' physical appearance. And we call this the transfiguration. And here's what they saw. His face shining like the sun. It was dazzling. And they saw this light coming from within him, shining through his clothes. They said his clothes were as white as light. One gospel writer says it was whiter than anything could possibly bleach. It was the dazzling brilliance that there were no words to describe it. They could only compare it to the other brightest things they'd seen before, like the sun. It was the glory of God uncovered, unveiled, shining in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, again, this is a Jewish audience. 
in their history, they understood exactly what this meant because they had had experiences in, in the past, in their historical past, when God had revealed his glory to them before. Look on your verse sheet in Exodus 24, verse 16. Moses had asked God to reveal his glory, and it says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of all the people. That was a physical manifestation of God's glory that appeared to Israel. They all were able to see it. It appeared multiple other times in their history, always showing them the presence of God and the glory of God with them. So a Jewish audience would have to recognize this glorious, dazzling, shining brightness coming out of Jesus was the same glorious brightness that the children of Israel saw. Jesus is described in Hebrews 1.3 as he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So what Jesus is doing here with these disciples, he's lifting the veil a little bit um, and revealing the glory of God. And it's confirming that Jesus is and always will be divine. Jesus will always be the Son of God, even though men can harm his physical body. No one can diminish his deity or his glory. And one day it will be uncovered and the entire world will see it. That's the sneak peek into the future he gives them. It goes on to tell us that Moses and Elijah are also there. Perhaps they're there representing the law and the prophets that Jesus came to fulfill. Luke tells us they're talking about Jesus' departure, his death, his resurrection. But the most interesting thing I read comes from Mark 9, 6. And he's describing this transfiguration. And he says, The disciples did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And so in spite of not knowing what to say, who starts talking? Peter. And here's what I thought when I read this. As a mother of young men, I think it would have been a huge advantage if Peter's mother had traveled with him. Because I think in this moment, and in that moment before when he's rebuking Jesus, his mother would have come alongside him. Peter, shh, just zip it. She probably would have pinched the back of his arm to get him to stop talking. Don't you think that would have been wonderful? Well, Peter doesn't stop talking. Let's listen to what he says, um, chapter 17, verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Perhaps he's suggesting we just all need to stay here together forever. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So God interrupts Peter. He interrupts him visually with this bright and glorious cloud. Also, we see the glory of God there. And he, and he interrupts him in an auditory way. He calls out, This is my son. Listen to him. And their response is pretty beautiful. They fall down in worship. And when you see them fall down in worship, you see a perfect picture of that eternal love relationship with God. Because here's what's happened. God has shown up and he has revealed the fullness of his glory and the fullness of his faithfulness and his goodness to them. And they have responded the only possible way they can. They give him glory in return. They respond by offering him their worship and their praise. 
And as quickly as Jesus took that veil off, he puts it back on. He covers his glory, and he says, tell no one about this until after my resurrection. So the message here, it's about eternity where God's glory will be on display all the time. It's about God's glory. It's hard for us also to keep eternity and God's glory at the forefront of our mind. God hasn't given us this visual experience, but he has given us some words from the book of the Revelation where he's describing the new Jerusalem where God's glory will be on display, where we will dwell with him. He'll be our God and we'll be his people. Listen to how it's described, Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb Jesus so the disciples follow up with a question about the prophecies that says doesn't Elijah have to come and Jesus makes it clear yes John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah Luke 1 17 says he's talking about John the Baptist before he's ever born and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared John's task was to prepare the people because everything was ready for the Messiah's kingdom, except the people. The nation of Israel would reject John the Baptist, they will also reject Jesus, and the kingdom will be delayed, but the church age will be ushered in. This series of discipleship lessons ends with one more discipleship don't. I'm going to paraphrase this as well. This is chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. It tells us the very next day after this transfiguration, a father comes to Jesus begging him to heal his son. The son has some kind of a seizure disorder like epilepsy, but the son is also probably uh, tormented by demons who are trying to kill him. And the father says something interesting. He said, I've already gone to the disciples, but they were unable to heal my son. And so we have to remember back in the story, back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had called together these disciples. He had given them his authority and his power to heal diseases and to cast out demons. And he had also given them the charge to go and do this. Go heal people. Go cast out demons. They had all they needed to heal this boy. But in this instance, they had been unsuccessful. Let's read beginning in verse 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. All right, Jesus says the source of their problem is little faith. I don't know if you've been keeping track, but we hear little faith a lot. It's always the source of a problem for the disciples. It means a lack of trusting God fully. And it's as if Jesus is saying, your faith is small, and they say, how small? And he says, smaller than a mustard seed, the smallest thing you know. And what Jesus is implying here is they are putting their faith and their confidence in their own power and their own authority and their own gifting. And Jesus is trying to correct that. And he goes on to tell them, if your faith was just a little bit bigger, even just as big as the tiny mustard seed, nothing would be impossible for you. That's a huge, big, bold promise. 
And so I want to unpack it just a little bit. What we have to do when we're trying to understand the scriptures is keep it in context. We need to know this is a limited promise. This are, these are Jesus' instructions for his disciples regarding their ministry. So he isn't saying any of us will have supernatural powers to move mountains. He isn't saying that. And, and honestly, most people believe move mountains is a proverbial expression. It means overcome an obstacle. Okay, So he isn't telling us we'll have supernatural powers. He isn't saying you'll never experience obstacles either. Because we know Jesus experienced obstacles. He experienced the cross. We'll all experience death. And it also assumes that anything that we're trying to do is within the will of God. We know that from 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So here's what Jesus is saying. They would need for their faith to rest fully on God. They would need to rely fully on God. And then God would accomplish his plans through them. They didn't need to rely on themselves. Don't succumb to little faith is the discipleship lesson because disciples fail when they don't believe in the power God has given them. They fail when they try to use their own strength and they fail when they act in an area that God has not asked them to act. That was true for them and it's true for us. Jesus has good work for all of us to do and his grace will be sufficient to equip us for that work. But we need to keep our faith from shrinking by keeping our confidence and our trust squarely on Jesus. He ends this discipleship lesson, verse 22. They were gathering in Galilee and Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So he ends with the reminder, the thing that he's been trying to teach them all along, kingdom conflict is coming, but hopefully they are also encouraged that kingdom glory is coming, and it's all within the divine plans of God. And they are greatly distressed and grieved, but we don't see them bucking up and fighting Jesus and resisting the plans of God. So I think we've definitely seen some growth in the disciples. I think there's a lesson for us as modern-day disciples as well. I think we all have potentially faith-shrinking moments, don't we? I can tell you I definitely do. I don't think we should be shocked or surprised by faith-shrinking moments. I think we should expect them. If Jesus' disciples experienced them in the past, we will today. But at the core of all shrinking faith is one thing. It's us. It's, it's ourselves. It's turning our eyes inward, focusing on ourselves, our own plans, our own desire, our own strength, our own emotions. Those are faith-shrinking opportunities. But fortunately, they're also faith-growing opportunities. So disciple, remember this. It is not about you. Your faith will grow instead of shrink when you turn your eyes away from yourself and set your eyes squarely on the king and the kingdom plans and his glory. Let's pray. God, you are glorious, and we thank you for showing us your glory and your goodness and your love. We thank you for giving us faith to recognize your son and live in a love relationship with you. Lord, I just ask that you would 
strengthen our faith. Give us reminders every day to turn our eyes off of ourselves and to look squarely at you. We want your glory. We want it in the future, and we want it every day as we live as your disciples. So help us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.